Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, the podcast that continues to heckle Brexit and throw juicy Spanish tomatoes at it. I am your host, Alex Andreu. If there were a best ensemble BAFTA, I'd be wearing it. A little date for your diary. We're starting a new monthly event for Patreon supporters only called Podcasters Question Time, where one of our panelists will answer any question you like live on Zoom. The first one is on Thursday, March the 2nd, and the panellist in question is, it says here it's me. So search Patreon, Oh God What Now podcast, to sign up and find out how to enjoy this gala evening of probing me with questions. <laughs> now, on today's show, secret EU negotiations on the protocol, a dithering PM, threats of ministerial resignations, backbench rebellions, unlikely alliances, and Johnson briefing against the government. Tonight we're going to party like it's 2018. <laughs> <laughs> also, a year on from Russia's escalation of the war in Ukraine, has it made the West rethink security, or are we simply settling into a new normal? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, when the broken clock you hate the most tells the right time. In an age of tribalism, how do we cope when our arch enemies actually make a good point? Let's meet today's panel. Seth Tevers is a historian and author of several books about private members' clubs. Hi, Seth. Hello. Seth, the big 48-hour nurses walkout planned for the beginning of March has been paused while talks resume. Is this real progress and might it cause a sort of domino effect? There are reports that the Treasury is considering a 5% raise across the public sector. Or is the government trying to pick off the unions that enjoy highest public support? I think that second outcome is much more likely. Um, this is a government which is obsessed with the Thatcher legacy and obsessed with the idea that a strong government takes on unions but chooses its moment well. And remember that um, when Thatcher had the big miners' strike dispute of 84, 85, she'd actually been building up to that for about five years. She'd been building up reserves to make sure that the government was in a position to win such a showdown and been anticipating that. And likewise, the government can see today which way the opinion polls are headed, you don't take on the nurses, you don't take on the doctors and teachers. Um, you find someone unpopular as a boogeyman to, to try and take on. Um, and they, they may try, well try and pay people off um, a bit of the way. But I mean, the suggestion that a 5% across the board raise would be enough. A lot of these occupations have had something more like a 25% real terms cut over the last 10, 15 years. Um, so this isn't something which is going to be solved quite easily. Hmm. Naomi Smith is the chief exec of Best for Britain and a wizard with chickpeas. Hi, <laughs> Shemima Begum uh, lost her challenge over the decision to deprive her of British citizenship. 
Justice Jay agreed that she is a threat to national security and fully dismissed her appeal. When proceedings are semi-secret like this, do we have to just trust the process? I, there, there is a lot to talk about with all of this, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief. I think considering the revelations that have emerged around the involvement of intelligence agencies in her journey to Syria, so Canadians have admitted that one of their spies played a role in getting her across the border, and obviously the, the potential sensitivity around identifying spies or revealing tactics in a public hearing, I, I do have some understanding and sympathy with the requirement to hold it uh, secretly. But it's exactly because of the involvement of allied state actors that there is going to be a lot more suspicion around this case and, and probably a good argument for it to have been more transparent. And whether or not you want to believe the apology that Shamima Begum has made uh, or what you think of her now, her case has, of course, betrayed the absolute reactionary right-wing populism that has infected the current government even before Johnson. I mean, many many have highlighted that removing her citizenship when uh, Theresa May was prime minister was probably a breach of international law at that time. And neither the government nor the media have treated her as a victim of grooming and trafficking despite being 15 years old, therefore a child in the eyes of the law when it happened. And I also think it's worth pointing out that the, you know there were so many of us that were very very concerned with the nationality and borders bill which is now the nationality and borders act when it was making its way through parliament last year because of the provisions around a- allowing the home secretary to make somebody stateless so long as they had recourse to another citizenship so not whether they actually had a dual citizenship, mm, but mm. just were allowed to apply yeah, for yeah. one. And so because of her father's Bangladeshi heritage, uh, it's argued that, well, she could just seek asylum there. That might feel very esoteric to most listeners or, you know, unlikely to apply to them. But if you think about the Israeli citizenship law of return, um, so you know, every Jewish person around the world is allowed to immigrate emigrate to Israel and automatically become a citizen state. And in fact, I think it also applies to the children and grandchildren of Jews, as well as their spouses and the spouses of their children and grandchildren. You could end up, you know, use abusing the terms of that act to force the stripping of citizenship for anyone who inadvertently found themselves caught up in a potentially terrorist Incident, I say potentially because, you know, who who knows what somebody that you're related to may or may not have done and somehow that could come back yeah, yeah. Uh, to you somehow and therefore you could be stripped of it. I'm not suggesting that I think the government intends to do this at large, but there is a precedent there now and the law says this. Uh, um, and whether it would also affect those of Irish descent who, of course, are allowed to, if they've got a grandparent that was born on the island of Ireland, apply um, for their Irish passport, they are deemed to be Irish citizens automatically within the eyes of Irish law. So I think there is a whole nasty, creeping encroachment of far-right populism into our statute books um, that, mm, that is mm. concerning. Completing the panel is King Charles's favourite eye columnist <laughs> and author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. You're an asshole. 
<laughs> the S&P's Kate Forbes seems to be trying to break the land speed record for crashing her own career. Um, <laughs> How did a politician with such retrograde views become a contender for one of the most important offices in Britain? They did used to sort of mutter about it. You know, there'd always be this, oh, it might be a bit hard for her to square some of her more socially conservative Christian views. with, But but they, I, I don't think anyone had quite calculated the extent to which she actually wished to turn those views into a live hand grenade and then just swallow <laughs> it whole in her first major TV interview of the campaign. There's some extraordinary nonsense talked about this. Of, of You can see them all gearing up for it now. Um, Giles Fraser among them. Of, of sort of, and Liam Fox, of sort of saying, oh, this just shows, you know, the illiberalism of, of, of people who call themselves liberal, that there's no space for, you know, people of religious... So it's just, just utter nonsense. I mean, the, the, primarily on the basis that what matters is the way that she says she will vote. Now, she was quite clear on this. If people have made the comparison with Tim Farron, and actually, the, the, I think it's quite a telling comparison in the exact opposite way. Tim Farron said, yes, that's my personal conscience as an evangelical Christian. But when it came to the vote on gay marriage, I supported it, which he did. I mean, there's a little bit of quivering there, particularly on protections he wanted for Christians conducting services. But nevertheless, on second reading, game, on, on gay marriage, he, he supported it. Now, she was saying quite the opposite. She was saying when she was asked... It, she wasn't there at the time, but she was asked, if that vote, if you'd been there during that vote, how would you have voted? This is where I would have voted no. Now, mm. if you're dealing with um, progressive politics, I'm sorry, but you get judged on the manner in which you would vote, not on your private conscience. And she's been very clear on the manner in which she would vote. So really, I mean, getting all het up about it from that side just seems to be a completely misplaced sensibility. There's something else I would add as well, which is, I just... I don't get that she gets any additional protections because she is a Christian. Like because you happen to believe a man in the sky does not mean that now suddenly all the rules don't apply and we're unable to evaluate your judgment. It doesn't give you that protection, the degree of protection that an atheist wouldn't have. So, I mean, she's, she's getting it very, very hard at the moment. She deserves absolutely every piece of the attacks and the criticism and the self-sabotage that she is receiving. And I don't really see from her own words that there are any... Uh, possible defences that would alleviate it for them. First up, Tuesday was supposed to be Rishi Sunak's grand unveiling of a new settlement around the Northern Ireland Protocol, the agreement with the EU on how to regulate Northern Ireland's status out of the bloc while its neighbour to the south remains in it. Unfortunately for Sunak, when he turned that page on his Goldman Sachs desk calendar, he ended up back in 2018, and the full-on Tory civil war that we all remember so fondly. A deal going through seems to hinge on the DUP and a small number of angry Brexiters on the backbenches. They don't mind Northern Ireland getting a worse deal than it currently has, provided it is the exact same rotten deal tormenting the rest of them. <laughs> and they have gone back to wanting a border that both exists and does not, that is neither in the sea nor on the land, that coddles 19th century issues with 22nd century technology. <laughs> Easy peasy. Naomi, this really feels like Back to the Future with Johnson in the role of Biff. Bernard Jenkin openly said on Wednesday morning that border checks should be on the north-south land border. Going further, I think, than ERG demands have gone before, is there any realistic chance of such a radical 
recalibration, first of all. Please, 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 can somebody just make Bernard Jenkins go away? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that we could. In saying this, he is either being unbearably thick thick or incredibly poisonous. Maybe there's a strong chance it's both. But let's start with stupid. The border is 500 kilometers long. It cuts through people's back gardens. The British army could not police it effectively when they had three, oh, 30,000 troops uh, there. So it's completely disingenuous and stupid to suggest it as any kind of viable alternative. They're now, they're now down to less than that in total, aren't they? The well, <laughs> almost certainly. Um, and then on to the poisonous, a hard border would just cause enormous economic damage. It would make life hell for border communities. These people just don't give a shit about Northern Ireland at all. You know, in many respects, they're, they're little England nationalists. It's all just part of their game. And it is unforgivable when you consider the blood that's been spilled in Northern Ireland and, and on British soil. And the absolute monumental work that was involved in bringing about peace. And then there's just like the complete lack of responsibility. These people have been in charge for 13 years. The Brexiters strongly for seven of those and the real crazies for three. And they get their way every time that they're not happy. They throw their toys out of the pram and they're just incapable of self-reflection. It's just overwhelming entitlement and it's offensive and they just need to shut up and the DUP was making, I thought, pretty positive noises late last week. Um, on Wednesday's PMQs, Donaldson seemed complimentary but more hostile. How crucial is DUP support? Could Sunak press ahead without it? Could the ERG continue to resist the deal if the DUP grudgingly accepted it? Mm. And does the DUP, you think, speak with one voice on this? Well, on the latter, no, it's... it's broadly received wisdom now that Donaldson is there and it's it's Sammy Wilson that isn't. So I'll, I'll explain that for people that maybe aren't quite so familiar. There is a split in the DUP between the real headbangers, like the ones that believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old, um, and then the the relative headbangers, and I really, really cannot stress the relative enough, more <laughs> moderate types like Jeffrey Donaldson. And the moderates, uh, you know, the real moderates, of course, left the party after Brexit, like former economy minister Simon Hamilton. But back to the current lot, of course the DUP are the ones to watch on all of this. If they actively oppose the deal, Sunak's in big trouble because it's going to embolden the ERG to oppose it. It means there is next to no chance of restoring power sharing at Stormont. Uh, there is probably no chance of, of Biden's trip to mark the 25-year anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and you can certainly kiss goodbye to that fabled US trade deal. If the DUP do support it, then Sunak's laughing, particularly as the ERG have said they'll be led by the DUP, but let's mm. watch them go back on that as quick as blinking. <laughs> um, and so this is probably the least likely option because the DUP love to whinge and act like victims, so they're going to want to hang on to that grievance. But probably the most likely outcome, therefore, is some kind of hybrid where the DUP set doesn't meet all of their seven tests, but they won't actively oppose it as a mark of improvement. 
Um, but however, they won't return to power sharing until all of their tests are met. Um, and it definitely has absolutely nothing to do with being junior partners to the pro-Irish unity Sinn Féin party <laughs> for the first time. And on it goes. Um, Seth, Suella Braverman is calling for Rishi Sunak to consider his next step but then was briefing late on Tuesday night that she was on board, as are apparently other fervent Brexiters like Chris Heaton-Harris and even Brexit strongman Steve Baker. Are they likely to move the debate, or will they simply be declared traitors to the true, pure Brexit cause? Well, this is the problem when you approach something uh, less as politics and more as a religious cult. Because if you're applying a purity test, somebody can always be purer than whatever position you have, especially belatedly as you're making up the rules as you go along. Um, <laughs> these, I mean, you have the four ministers, Braverman, Baker, Heaton, Harris, and Raab, who have um, behind the scenes been threatening resignation over the last few days. The, the trouble with, with mass resignations like this is that um, they're a bit of a suicide pact in that um, if one of you goes over the top but no one else does, you end up looking like an idiot. Um, I mean, mm. the most notable case of my lifetime I can remember was um, James Pennell, who resigned from Gordon Brown's cabinet, calling on the leadership election and the unseating of the prime minister with immediate effect, which produced absolutely no result other than people wondering, what are you doing? And who's Pernell? <laughs> <laughs> and asking who is Pernell? But um, the alternative is that uh, you do get a mass resignation and it looks overly calculated, overly jockeying and manoeuvring. I mean, it's, it's not exactly news that uh, these people have been plotting for a while, but this feels very much like the machinations, you know, you were saying 2018 or even 2016 and 2017. Remember Boris Johnson resigning from the cabinet or indeed David Davis resigning from the cabinet or these various sort of jockeyings for position. It's a little bit like um, playing level nine on a computer game and you expect the tactics that got you through level one and two to keep actually having some sort of cutthroat <laughs> effects. You mentioned Rob there. Um, might there be other factors playing into his resignation decision, right? He choose the ejector seat before he's jettisoned by the investigation into his alleged behaviour. Yeah, this is a tricky one. I mean, it's actually quite hard for Rob to resign, even on an issue of principle, because you could say, oh, yes, this gets him out of hot water and the whole thing becomes a moot point if he resigns over this. But um, firstly, it reminds people that he exists, which I don't think is in his interest. <laughs> and many um, like to forget. <laughs> secondly, I, I think a problem he has is that um, it doesn't actually make the heat go away. It looks like, arguably, an admission if he were to resign at this time. I, I don't know what the current count is, but when I last checked, there were 24 civil servants who complained about bullying from him. 24 complaints. I think the number of civil servants is smaller. Okay, 24 complaints from multiple civil servants. The, the, the point is that resigning now might not look great if, if that's unresolved at the time. And the, the ultimate reason why it's hard to see him resign is that um, the, the man's not the most capable person in this cabinet, let's be honest, and um, it's very hard to see him being reappointed. Ian, um, two of the most prominent voices for undoing the deal are the people who negotiated and signed the deal, <laughs> Johnson and Frost. Mm. Is this alternate reality part of a real battle about the protocol, do you think? Or is it just a proxy war to make trouble for Sunak, in which case he might as well push the protocol through 
because it's not like it's going to make those factions go away. It's both. I'm pretty mm. sure they're motivated by both. It's quite important to... Th- th- there's, there's kind of a change in them and in the ERG and in the DUP, which I think blurs into one a lot of the time. And it's the change when, when they shifted from practical objections in the protocol to existential objection to the protocol. Mm, And that mm. change took place in 21, in the second part of 2021. So, I mean, if you look at the spring of 2021, the DUP were putting out their seven demands, right? And their seven demands were all about facilitating trade, basically. It was it was ultimately, you're accepting the, the, the broadly what the protocol said, and it's just like, how do we make it so that, you know, this still feels like one customs territory? And then in October it all changed. And it was when Frost did that speech where he started talking about, oh, we've got to get rid of the European Court of Justice. Now, that was an existential moment because then you're saying, you know, the deal, as much as Johnson and Frost denied it at the time, put Northern Ireland in the EU Customs Union. If it's in the EU Customs Union, it follows EU law. If it follows EU law, it's, it comes under the jurisdiction of the European yeah. Court of Justice. I mean, this, it's basic maths, right? So the point that you start saying, well, we don't want the ECJ there anymore, That's the point that you're questioning it on an existential basis. And now everyone has shifted to that position. After that speech that Frost did, that's when plenty of people in the ERJ, if you you look at the kind of thing that Michael Fabricant's putting out, the kind of stuff that uh, John Redwood's putting out, and now if you look at the kind of stuff that Nigel Dodds is putting out for the DUP, it's exactly the same. So, well, we can't accept any deal where we end up under European law. And you're like, well, you will end up under European law if it is the protocol in any shape or form, because what the mm. protocol does is put you in the fucking EU customs union. You know, and, and that shift from the practical to the existential, I think is part of the reason that it's so hard to make out now, and it's so hard for them to clarify in their own minds the extent to which they're willing to make any compromises at the moment. Mm. Starmer has promised to provide the votes and the political cover for Sunak to do this deal, even in the face of a backbench revolt. And it's a point that he pressed really hard on Wednesday's PMQs. But is it likely, do you think? Does it solve Sunak's problem? Brexit headbangers have a history of punishing their PM on unrelated legislation. (laughs) They go native. Mm. So, you know, the support by Labour on this one thing doesn't mean they're not going to turn around and screw him on something else in a week's time. So, I mean, it it would put him in an extremely precarious position if he was relying on Labour for the vote on something of such magnitude and constitutional magnitude as well as trading magnitude, something so totemic. But at the same time, if he gets this thing through one way or another, things do genuinely improve for Sunak. I don't think it's enough to save him, right? But suddenly you're talking about there is a lot of pent-up investment that can be unleashed at the point that businesses think, you know what, there might actually be some stability in this country for a while. There are trading opportunities. I mean, I say opportunities with the heaviest of fucking air quotes in the Pacific <laughs> that get opened up. You know, if you're like, well, we don't have to worry about, you know, and I. The- Horizon. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and look at what, you, again, like Naomi said with the US, which I think is distant, but possible. Or, and more broadly than that, I'd say the opportunities for just better mood music around Brexit. You know, this mm. idea of it would stop being this intractable, contorted problem. You could put that part to bed a bit and just start trying to tell a different story, looking to the Pacific, blah, blah, blah. So it would, to get it through with Labour support, but without the ERG, would, would damage him in the short term, personally, in terms of his standing in the party. 
but it would open up opportunities for him, very big opportunities in the medium term. I don't think that he will think that's a calculation he wants to make. I think he'll he'll capitulate in the end if that's the way it looks like it's going to go. But ultimately, you know, there are two different dynamics in play there and he'd be wiser to look to the medium term. Naomi, is there support in Northern Ireland for dumping the protocol altogether? I mean, my my impression was that they are doing better than the rest of the UK economically from this one foot in each territory um, status. Um, and no one seems to be considering what happens if you implement a solution that pleases the DUP but pisses off everyone else. What's the polling landscape? There is not support across Northern Ireland for dumping the protocol altogether. You had the Assembly elections last year. Parties that campaigned on protecting the protocol saw their total vote share and seat count increase. Combined, they won 56.2% of first preferences, 53 seats out of 90. If you then include the Ulster Unionist Party who opposed the protocol in its current form, but have called for its reform rather than its removal, that then jumps to 63 seats and over 67% of the vote. And this has been supported by more subsequent polling as well as those actual uh, ballot box votes last year. And if you compare that with the DUP and TUV, which are the traditional Ulster voice, you know, even more headbangery than DUP, combined they won less than 30% of the first preference votes on the platform, scrapping the protocol wholesale with no proposed alternative. Members of the ERG, as Ian was saying, they're now objecting to any kind of two-speed system of rules in Northern Ireland. Um, But isn't this what the ERG signed up to when they voted for Johnson's deal. I, f- I find this really confusing because there was a, the thinnest of excuses. You could say that before when they were saying, oh, we don't like the way the EU is applying it. But they're now saying no ECJ involvement, no kind of uh, adherence to EU regulations. And, I, and we're talking basically about treaty change, aren't we? It is exactly what the ERG signed up to when they voted for Johnson's (laughs) deal. Yes, 100%. Uh, To be fair to the ERG, though, it's also what the DUP campaigned for with Brexit. They were told that Northern Ireland would be uniquely impacted by Brexit, by dint of geography, in the way the rest of Britain never would be. So they can either have complete unfettered access to the UK market, economic disaster and a crisis on the border, or they can have some kind of protocol. Simon Clark uh, in a hugely enjoyable blue and blue spat with Gavin <laughs> Barwell even suggested that Johnson was somehow bounced into a bad deal by <laughs> Remainers, and I, I just I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, how could he be bounced? He had a majority of eighty and had purged the party of all Remainers literally the month before. How it was, was he Reddy. bounced? Governor Reddy, he had it. That, he knew, he knew, yeah. I'm so, so tired of these people, you know. I'm so tired. Oh, is, of isn't it just around. fucking exhausting? I mean, more than anything. Um, Seth, how does all this relate to the local elections in May, do you think? They're, they're seen as a staging post for Sunak and a possible comeback launch for Johnson on the other side. Is there a danger here for the Tories that, despite most voters being unfamiliar with the detail of all this, it begins to give a general impression that Brexit was not done. 
at a time when a lot of people think it was a bad idea anyway. Yes, well, I mean, firstly, I'm relieved that you didn't ask the question about Simon Clark to me, because the bane of my life is that I am, in fact, a lookalike for Simon Clark at <laughs> yeah. the same age. Um, <laughs> you are much sweeter, much sweeter than Simon Clark. I would never mistake you. Keeping the, um, well, I'm also shorter and slightly bolder. Um, keeping the... Um, Conservative voter coalition together is basically the challenge that will define the remainder of Rishi Sunak's premiership as far as his party is concerned. Um, the country may be worried about the imploding economy, but I think the Conservatives are really worried about can we win and they'll see this very much as a test. Um, the trouble on something like this is that the number of voters who think that Brexit is really important and that keeping Brexit pure and getting it done the right way is a vanishingly small species. Even people who are real enthusiasts from 2016 to 2019 um, are, are flaking away because you know other crises and other priorities. Um, a lot of the local elections are really about expectation management, and so we're going to you know hear the endless thing we hear every local election of, oh well, this is good or bad compared to last time round. What they're comparing these seats to is 2019. 2019 was a really interesting year because um, it was actually more or less a dead heat. Uh, Labour and the Conservatives were even on 28%. Uh, the Lib Dems polled um, 18% in, in third place, so there was actually some scope to squeeze from that. Um, if you compare that to what happened a year later, which was actually Keir Starmer's first ever electoral test, the Tories got a very clear lead of 36% to Labour on 29%. Um, we're not in that kind of environment anymore. So, um, you know, looking at Sunak has done incredibly well compared to Liz Truss. Uh, his popularity and approval ratings are up there with where B Boris Johnson was in January 2022, six months before he had to step down. Um, I'm not suggesting that Rishi Sunak is on his way out anytime soon, but I am suggesting that uh, the, you're, you're looking at a government that's sort of in a pile of deep doodah and wondering how to get through all of this. Um, so, no, I'm not expecting, you know, anything terribly momentous or important from these local elections. Okay, so let me flip that around and, and, and ask you, is there an opportunity for Sunak actually to look stronger and more authoritative by just ignoring the ERG, pushing the deal through, resolving the strikes, which we were talking about earlier, is, a, is now more of a possibility than it was. Um, so is there a hypothetical in which he can resolve this stuff and actually look as if he's getting somewhere? Resolving the intractable problem over the protocol is such a hypothetical <laughs> that I'm not sure that's even, um, you know, um, likely. In, in terms of keeping his vote coalition... It's not together, actually I mean, that difficult, Seth. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Seth. I'm going to have to pick you up on that. It's not actually that difficult. He just has to sign a deal and fucking keep to it. <laughs> yes, but you know, for the ultimately, that's so what it is. Parties. But that's the thing, and, and not ending up in court and not ending up in, you know, intractable trade disputes, etc. No, I, I think the, the problem that's uh, here is is a political one. It's it's not a, a governance one. It's how do they keep their voter coalition together? And this is what all this culture war stuff is about, that frankly nobody cares about or about 3% of the population cares about. It's mm. because it is a proxy for Brexit. It's an attempt to try and keep people who agree on issues um, voting Conservative and aligned with the Conservatives. The trouble is that there's such a disconnect because in a time of economic crisis, people rather care about things like rampant poverty, rampant cost of living. Um, th this doesn't necessarily look like a winning solution to me. Um, mm. The... 
template which this government I, I think is very clearly going for is the idea that it's a 1992 election that they're going to be able to try and uh, remaster that kind of electoral coalition but firstly that was based on a cuddlier nicer one nation conservatism which uh, was turning its back on the sort of rather more sharp rhetoric of the past it's hard to have that if you're saying oh well we're going to try and um, you know do some funny business with the Northern Ireland Protocol but also, it was at a time before a massive economic crisis, not in the middle of it. Naomi, um, on, on the local elections, and this is something on which we've had multiple Patreon emails from Vanessa Kilpatrick, Darren Fletcher, Jane Moran, thank you all. Reports suggest a, a, a very small proportion of those who may need voter ID have actually applied for it. How many disenfranchised people do you think it will take for government to be forced into admitting that some kind of rejig is required? I think it's really difficult to quantify the number of people who just stay at home, put off because they realise they haven't sorted out ID. Turnout fluctuates so much that it'll be pretty impossible to pick out the effect of this particular reason. Mm -hmm. Um, The risk of waiting and seeing until after the election to look at the impact is that the election will have already happened and the effects of it relatively permanent. Um, and, and the balance of risks to elections should focus more on the problem that it is intended to fix, which, as we all know, and as I'm sure our clever Patreon backers who have emailed in about it know, is virtually non-existent. You know, single-figure investigations at the last two general elections with turnouts in the tens of millions resulted in just one conviction for voter fraud. And based on that, if the government were being, uh, you know, balanced, just just one person disenfranchised should be enough to launch a full U-turn, for God's sake. I would just like to point out something that Lee Rowley said. He's the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, which the Elections Act sits within. It's that department that looks at elections. He said, I need to take notion that there are 2 million people who need voter ID. That is absolutely not correct. And I hope that honourable members will stop reiterating it. Of those 2 million people, which is an estimate, a large number will not have elections in their area this year. Secondly, of that group, a number will choose not to vote, much as we would like them to. They may have chosen never to vote. And although we would encourage them to do so, that is ultimately the purpose of a democracy. People have the right to vote and a right not to vote. We are seeking to encourage them to vote and seeking to guarantee that integrity. So what he is basically doing is playing down the headline figure of 2 million people disenfranchised as it's just an estimate. Of course, it could be higher. And relying on some people choosing not to vote as a reason not to care that 2 million people are at best inconvenience and at worst disenfranchised from politics. Uh, mm. He's saying the quiet bit out loud. It's, a, it's an extra... I saw the session live yesterday. It really is an extraordinary statement to say, well, many of them weren't going to vote anyway, so who cares? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, they, or, that's or, what it boils yeah. down to. They don't vote for the Conservatives, so who cares? Mm. Or you know, whatever. Ridiculous. Ian, let us round things off by, by raising our gaze to the pink horizon. Um, Keir Starmer... Promised. Oh, that sounds like different. sex chat, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> he promised a very different approach in, in what I thought was a really wide ranging speech to the National Farmers Union. 
He says he wants to remove barriers, protect high standards, and seek a better trading relationship with the EU. Is Labour's position moving in the right direction, do you think? No, it's, already, it's been there for ages. And, and the thing is that it's sort of concealed by the way that they brief his Brexit speeches as, oh, look at how committed we are to Brexit. And then there's always a line in there that says, you know, we want deals and we're going to have deals on agriculture and blah, blah, blah. Now what you're seeing is what that turns into when it becomes an address to a sector. And there it's like, we're going to facilitate trade. We're going to help with trade. We're going to help. He was also talking about labor, which is quite a thing to say when you consider the implications of what that means. And I think that there's something to be learned here, which is that if there's a labor government, they're going to renegotiate the deal with the EU. Now, that's either going to be something really full fat that we might want, customs union, single market, or it's going to be everything up to that point. If it's everything up to that point, look at how easily all these seemingly intractable culture war sort of tinged disputes about who is it that's got control and who sets the rules suddenly become completely technocratic and boring and get almost no news time once they're conducted in a sense of like, okay, so we're going to align on, you know, on this, or we're going to have sanitary and phytosanitary, you know, arrangements with you. Suddenly, all of the culture war aspect of it just dissipates away and it just starts getting talked about in basic economic terms, which are not very newsworthy. And that, I think, is quite a telling moment for all of us because that's the manner in which this will be discussed if Labour wins that next election and it chooses not to go for single market and customs union. And what it adds up to is a much, much, much closer and friendlier and more intimate relationship with the EU than the one that we have right now. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Jeff Stevenson says, which politician displays the most symptoms of main character syndrome? Johnson or Blair? Now I'm going to open I'm going to open this up to the panel for possible other submissions uh, that you may have beyond Johnson or Blair. But but let's start with that, shall we? I think you'd need a very fine instrument to measure. <laughs> the difference between and I, I don't think we've we've invented that. My only defence of Blair would be that he has actually been the main character for a lot longer in a much more significant way than Johnson has. So perhaps his delusion of grandeur is is marginally more justified. What do you think, Ian? Well, I just I've never met. A single politician, including the ones that I very much like personally and or politically, <laughs> that doesn't have this syndrome. I sort of think like it's a precondition for going into politics is you have to have that really firm sense of sort of ego and of entitlement. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean, you know, that you've got something to offer and you want to. I, I just can't. I like being a writer or a commentator. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got come on. I'm going to write it on. down and make you buy it. <laughs> Listen, he writes for the I. I mean, what would Freud? 
What would Freud make of that? <laughs> Once again, you're both assholes, just to be clear. There's, there's um, a very good book called The President's Club, which is entirely about what happens to ex-presidents and how they go to the same kinds of events, disaster relief funds, um, you know, the speaking circuit, all of these kinds of things. And it's very interesting how most of the ex-US presidents tend to be quite chummy together, even the ones who are really strong mm. enemies in office. So uh, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter became best mates. Bill Clinton got on really well with both um, the first and second president, Bush. Um, by contrast, the reason I mention this is Blair and Johnson have such big egos. I can't see them getting along at all at these kinds of events. <laughs> Yeah, but Seth, you'll know the answer to this. Um, the amount of money that, that Johnson has made since he ceased to be prime minister, is that proportionately earnings at a faster rate than Blair post? Oh, good question. I'd, I'd have to look it up. I mean, the thing is, Blair set up a very complex um, company structure with various organisations and foundations and bodies. So um, Blair is still the absolute record holder. I mean, if we're talking about main character syndrome... Blair does have an institute with his own name in it, and Johnson doesn't yet. <laughs> Today marks the first anniversary of Russia's all-out assault on Ukraine. The story is familiar by now. The Russian army marched on Kiev with a convoy of tanks, so sure of its success that officers had packed the parade uniforms. But what was supposed to be a 10-day special military operation, an easy victory for Vladimir Putin, proved nothing of the sort. The resilience of the Ukrainian people against such a huge offensive seemed to shock and inspire the West in equal measure. Boris Johnson milked the conflict to save his political future, but at least he did so by saying and doing the right things. He deserves huge credit for that. Liz Truss started the conflict as foreign secretary, unwilling to confront Russian money being siphoned into her party, but all the Russian money in the world couldn't save her from political oblivion. Now Rishi Sunak, more financial hawk than war hawk, is tasked with showing the global leadership necessary. But can he overcome his foreign policy inexperience, especially at a time when the UK is not the most trusted ally in European capitals? Naomi, this anniversary seems to have galvanised Western support at state level. But could it end up also undermining public support by just reminding people how long this has been going on and that there is no end in sight, that we're looking basically at just phase one? It's really hard to tell. Um, at the moment, the polling would suggest not. Uh, Ipsos polling from a couple of weeks ago showed that around 80% of Brits say Russia should be excluded from sporting events like the Olympics, that Britain must support sovereign countries when they are attacked, and that we should take in Ukrainian refugees from the conflict. About 70% support severe economic sanctions mm. and continuing to support the Ukraine until all Russian troops have been withdrawn. And as a country, I think we seem to have a greater interest, according to this polling compared to similarish countries, um, about 75% of Brits are closely following stories about the invasion compared to about 64% 
of mostly European average countries. So things like um, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, etc. So I think people get why it's important in Britain. And I think it helps that both Labour and the Conservatives are pretty much in lockstep on the, the key mm-hmm. issues around Ukraine. The one constant in, in our government in the last year and a bit is Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. I, I I was actually trying to think whether there was another senior cabinet mm. um, minister that has been in post throughout all that, you know, the, the Johnson resignations and Johnson going trust Sunak. Um, and I can't think of one. How important has that been and how would you rate his performance? I mean, I guess competent. I did do a bit of a double take when he was on Sky News recently talking about how the armed forces have been hollowed out and underfunded because, mate, who's been in charge for the last <laughs> years? Which prime minister gave you your job? And what did that prime minister want to do with the tanks that that now ex-prime minister is telling everyone have to be sent to Ukraine? Mm-hmm. I mean, he wanted to scrap them. So, yeah, no, you're, you're right. Um, I mean, it has, it, Gove doesn't meet your test, does he? Because he, he, he was out of... He, he went. He w- yeah, he was sacked. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. was sacked and then came back. Um, Ian, on the day on the invasion, you praised Joe Biden's straight-talking attitude to US intelligence of uh, Putin's plans. Um, Biden just visited Ukraine a year on it, declared that one year later, Kiev stands and Ukraine stands and democracy stands. How vital was that symbolism, do you think, for this moment? Yeah, I mean, it, it matters. It, it, it matters to keep on reminding people, I think, of the stakes and of the principle of what is going on here. You know, in 10 years time, I don't think that we'll remember hardly anything of the things that we talk about in politics right now. We'll just remember this war will be the thing that we talk about, that we remember this period for. Because it's a moment in history where you can feel that things can go either way. You know, if Putin wins, that there is no end to how badly wrong things can go all over the world. And if he loses, we would have drawn a line in the sand of what these thugs and tyrants think that they can do in dragging us back to a previous period in the progress of our species. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's We're talking mm. biblical-level politics. That's what it is. Yeah. And the symbolism, therefore, really, really matters and has been broadly well done by Biden. It's much harder for him, by the way, I think, than we realise in this country because, I mean, as Naomi was saying, you know, the consensus is very firm here. And I'm genuinely actually quite moved by the extent of the consensus in this country yeah. between the Tories and Labour, really you don't hear anyone apart from the lunatic fringes on the Farage side and the Corbyn side really questioning it. They're quite quiet voices. In the US, that is that is not the case. And so it, it's take, he's probably taking more damage for this than we actually properly recognise right now. Hmm. So on that, I mean, what happens if Trump or whoever ends up being the Republican candidate says, I think that war has nothing to do with us, we have no business being there, as has been his instinct with other conflicts when he was last standing for the position. What does that do to the consensus in the States? Yeah, yeah, no, that's well, that's exactly the thing. That I think that, that you know, you look at the Republican Party and actually there's a, a really 
quite deep sense of pro-Russian sentiment, or rather pro-tyrant sentiment, and Putin happens to be the one representing it at this given moment. You saw that certainly with Trump, but you see it much more broadly in the Republican Party. And then more troubling, I think, is that among liberal views in the US, it is not as firm as it is in progressive circles in the UK, the support for Ukraine. So I see people even that I, that I think of quite highly, friends of mine actually in the US um, and commentators have a much more skeptical view. And I'm trying to work out exactly why that is. I, I suspect it's this um, kind of sort of political ghost memory of sort of, you know, red scares and stuff as you're growing mm, up politically, mm, you know, McCarthyism and the sort of things you would have even had growing up in the 70s and 80s, mean that you're instinctively wary of, of a sort of anti-Russian kind of bias. We, obviously, we're in the Cold War, but, but it wasn't quite as severe for us culturally and socially as it was for the US. Yeah. And we, we didn't become as draconian. So, so yeah, that, that is a real and present danger. And if the war goes on past the next election and Republicans got in, things could go could become very, very bleak indeed. Naomi, um, I remember sitting in, in this room last year, last summer, and warning that fixing the length of the Homes for Ukraine scheme at six months was a mistake and would create a, a sort of artificial cliff edge. And we are now seeing many reports of families, both host and guest, feeling trapped, private landlords refusing Ukrainian tenants. I mean, I'm not blaming people with, with the cost of living crisis going on, um, homeless refugees, local councils over, overwhelmed. What, why is the government not stepping in at all? From the Conservative point of view, the scheme was beautifully elegant. It followed the Cameron playbook in that it shifted responsibility of the state onto well-meaning, charitable British people. And then the more Johnson-esque part was the intention to leave them in the lurch when the story dropped off the headlines. Hmm. Inviting a stranger into your house is an incredibly generous thing to do. And some people, very few people, can make it work long term. But for a lot of people, they were expecting the government to step in with a medium to long term solution. They open their doors thinking, well, well, this is because we have to urgently get them out of an actual war. And we can then find, you know, use that time, the government can use that time to find more permanent uh, accommodation for them. And that is what needs to happen, starting by increasing support to councils who seem to be bearing the brunt of the government's failure to plan. And and you have to think, of course, that, you know, if our housing shortage and our housing crisis broadly with, a, you know, when you bring into uh, question the quality aspect of housing in some parts of the country, it, it, the government has comprehensively failed to address most governments have as well, it's mm. not just this one, uh, then this may be less of an issue. But if we're expecting this government to act humanely or plan for something longer than two weeks away, yeah, we're all for the birds. Seth, um, global growth seems to me to be reaching a sort of new equilibrium. Uh, most countries have managed to make alternative energy arrangements Inflation is beginning to fall. Many Ukrainians are returning to their homes. Even the Russian economy is recovering in a way. Is there a danger that our innate adaptability will just create a new normal that robs the situation of, of the momentum, of the energy it needs to reach a resolution? And, and we could have this going on for the next decade. 
Um, well, I don't know about a decade, but you're absolutely right that, that there might be some watering down on these things. But remember just the scale of the signal shift that there was in 2022. Um, I think if you went out onto any high street and asked a number of people if they were even aware of Ukraine, much less had strong feelings about it, uh, you know, in January 2022, this wouldn't have registered. Whereas now, the starting point is, this is wrong, this must stop, we need to do what is required. And yes, there might be some um, nerves over what is required in the short term and so on. I think the important thing here is that time matters for these sorts of things, particularly if you're looking at Russia going on going it alone on this. Um, actually, weirdly, I think the, the best analogy that I can think of is the position of Germany in World War One, And what I mean by that is that um, there is a sort of gradual realisation, I think, amongst historians that all these ideas about, well, well, pressure on the Western Front and the Eastern Front, all these things, were largely pretty immaterial, actually. The story of the collapse of Germany in World War One is the story of an economic blockade that starts in 1914 and takes four and a half years to actually have any effect. And what you see happen eventually is the very rapid rupture of a country and an economy that's over four years mm. in the making. And so it may well be that Russia limps on in this uncomfortable but by no means um, impossible position. It's unsustainable. That's the thing. Um, and yes, this may well limp on for an uncomfortably long time with unpleasant casualties on all sides. But the alternative is not something I think people who believe in democracy are prepared to countenance. Ian, um, finally, um, on a lighter note, uh, Matt Hancock is commemorating this solemn anniversary in the only way he knows how by launching a collection of non-fungible tokens of sort of Maoist looking inspirational portraits of himself looking at the sunrise. Have we reached peak grift, do you think? Oh, have you not seen them, Naomi? No, absolutely you absolutely no you absolutely have have to. It looks like someone <laughs> drew Pete Buttigieg that has never seen Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> And ended up with somewhat, something that looks a little bit like uh, Matt Hancock if he if he had hair. Um, was it like I think on some level we we tried to deny it, right? But like we knew that one day the words NFT and Matt Hancock would feature in the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a fucking eclipse. It's like a total eclipse of the sun. And like, what, the most extraordinary thing about him is is not that he's like. He's definitely not the worst, you know, morally or intellectually or even in terms of competence, in terms of this generation of politicians. But he's definitely the naffest. It's just like the, the extent of his naffness, like, could be seen from fucking space. <laughs> he, I, I, he leaves me completely, completely speechless. So by this point, I think I've reached the point now where he actually lightens up my day. Like, I think he genuinely makes the world a happier place just by acting as this human punchline to whatever the fuck is in the news that way. <laughs> Strong divorced it's... dad energy. <laughs> it's nearly the end of the show. So what are the stories that have fallen under the radar? this week. Naomi? I think I may have mentioned in Under the Radar a few weeks ago an Observer story that I was very surprised hadn't 
been picked up more widely, which was this horrendous story about um, child asylum seekers going missing in Sussex from, you know, Brighton roads. Um, and again, it was it was this weekend's Observer that ran a story that I haven't seen picked up much elsewhere, that these children or many of these children are now believed to be um, uh, being exploited by criminal gangs many, 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 many miles away, 260 miles away um, in the Cheatham Hill area of Manchester, just north of the city centre beneath the shadow of Strangeways Prison, if, if you know the area. And the story was that there are these crime groups composed, you know, uh, largely along ethnic lines that work with or against each other. Um, and that uh, police intelligence have confirmed extreme levels of brutality, extortion and intimidation. Um, these are, you know, among the most threatening streets in Britain now in, in criminal terms and is where these very, very vulnerable child asylum seekers are believed to have been taken. Um, and, you know, we, we, we say this often on the podcast that can you believe that in 2022 in Britain, one of, you know, the supposedly richest, supposedly most democratic, blah, 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 countries in the world, X thing is happening. But, you know, this kind of stuff just takes it to a whole new level. We know that the Home Office is under terrible leadership with Suella Braverman and her predecessor uh, and <laughs> predecessors before that. Um, but this, I mean, it is just heartbreaking. And it is, I mean, it, 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 I, I sometimes struggle to read this stuff. I saw Caroline Lucas, who has really taken this on as a campaign, yeah. asked a relevant minister last towards the end of last week, whether at least the government would agree to compile some data on this, mm. like how many mm. children mm. go missing and for how long. And the minister basically replied, uh, children being kidnapped is bad. Mm. And we've put in loads of money to solving the problem of county lines crime. I mean, th that was his answer. I mean, uh... Seth, how about you? I was going to talk about Chopper. Um, Christopher Hope, as he's... Oh, known please, do you have to? <laughs> no, I, I think this is interesting, not because this is a Westminster Village story about um, the long-time Telegraph journalists uh, going after 20 years over to work for GB News as their head of politics. What I think is more interesting is what this says about GB News um, as a channel. I mean, I still don't believe that a channel like this, which is not subject to normal sort of broadcasting regulation, can be regarded as a proper channel. Um, its objective, being something that's very much out of the right-wing playbook in the States, is to have all the trappings of a channel. It is there to generate clips that you can use online to popularize in social memes. They might uh, have a laughably small number of viewers overall, but their social media reach is considerable. Um, and they allow people to say, look, that, that this is somebody appearing on TV dressed up as a journalist or dressed up as an interviewee. And what makes it look plausible is that they've got well-known faces from uh, – much mm, more mm. well-known sort of media outlets appearing there. So it is this interesting transformation that GB News has, um, and you've got the celebs and people like John Cleese getting involved, and it, it does very much seem to be something which, which is getting very serious in how it goes about its rather frivolous attitude to, to news. Ian, how about you? 
Yeah, so uh, something happened in uh, the Commons yesterday that was picked up by my former colleague, Adam Biankov, um, which is very interesting. Um, the immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, was doing his usual sort of blather from the government about, you know, these human rights lawyers who are um, abusing and exploiting our laws. Uh, and the Lib Dem, Alistair Carmichael, asked him, well, if, you, if, if you're saying that they're abusing and exploiting the law, are you monitoring this? And out of Robert Jenrick's mouth came the following sentence. We are monitoring the activities, as it so happens, of a small number of legal practitioners, but it is not appropriate me, for me to discuss that here. And you're just like, well, she just fucking what? said, you just said that out loud, that you're basically monitoring asylum lawyers, basically, and human rights lawyers, as part of your crazed conspiracy theory about the abuse of our laws. And that little sentence, typical of Adam Bienkoff stuff, that it doesn't, you know, he's just there paying attention, reporting the stuff, often not getting picked up anywhere else, but is, you know, needless to say, like a rather concerning development. Wow. Under what data protection? I mean... I cannot answer that question because all we have at the moment is what Robert Jenrick said. They should all put in um, information requests, I think, to see, yeah. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, it's just possible, given that they are lawyers, that they might well decide to pursue that exact course of action. <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. Um, so my, my story is about a, a sort of EU workers' exodus from the hospitality industry buried in some ONS data. It's the first figures I've seen on this. And I think a lot of people, certainly a lot of EU citizens like me, do have this sort of anecdotal sense that many people went home during the pandemic having achieved settled status and just never came back. Um, But to see it confirmed in the figures uh, that the percentage of hospitality workers uh, that are of EU extraction has gone from 42% to 28%. That's 56,000 fewer people working in that one sector alone, I think is is quite an extraordinary thing. And, and I think it explains quite a lot about the labour shortages we're experiencing at the moment and the inflationary pressures. Um, and that's the show. Thanks so much to Seth. Thank you. To Naomi. Thanks for having me. And to Ian. Thank you very much. And stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank yous to our patient army of generous supporter. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more, including questions to me next Thursday. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. Hello and greetings to me from Jackie Hutchinson, Nathan McAllister, Richard Chin and Jacob Fry. Uh, many thanks from me and hello to Lynn Lindsay, Colin Wood, Dan Reevesy Reeves and Sarah B. Hello and thank you for your generosity to Alan Bainbridge, Adam, Nick Firth and Steve James. And finally, much appreciation from me to Robert Clapham, Julian Missel, Shubshenka Jalan, and Keith Windsor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh, God, what now? Was presented by Alexandreu with Ian Dunt, Naomi Smith, and Seth Tevos. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. 
with additional production from Kasia Tomasiewicz, Jack Gerbertson, and me, Alex Rees. Our direction was by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive for Patreon backers. This week, in a clumsy attempt to make the books more marketable in a changing world, the late Roald Dahl's publisher is changing passages in his books. Augustus Gloop is enormous rather than fat. Shame his name's still Augustus Gloop, then. The changes were seized upon by the right-wing press as further evidence of the woke mind virus. But the detractors didn't have much to say on Roald Dahl's history of anti-Semitic remarks, a point picked up by Salman Rushdie, who knows a thing or two about censorship. Elsewhere, the government's voter ID plans are being panned by someone pretty invested in the Tories, the spectator's Fraser Nelson. So how do we feel about agreeing with people we normally wouldn't touch with a barge pole? Ian, is this a sign of fatigue in the culture wars, like like the bizarre debate on 15-minute cities? The fact that just about anything is now turned into a binary culture war issue, does that actually show a lack of focus? I I don't think that there's much of a plot. I think it's a sort of genuine news story, really. And it's... And, I suspect it comes down to a sense of um, intuitive injustice about stepping into a book of a dead author and messing around with it in a way that feels qualitatively different to a sensitivity read for a live author who's seeing the changes that are being proposed and is agreeing to them. Now, in fact, this is not new and actually happens fairly frequently. Uh, But it feels... Like that is its own moral question, right? Which you should have a view on irrespective of where you stand on the changes that are made or your general position on the culture war. So, I mean, look, obviously it does get sucked into culture war stuff and it is to a certain extent culture war nonsense, but there is in it a very precise and specific moral question, which I I fully, fully get why people would feel a bit affronted by it, because I feel a bit affronted by it myself. I think it, it's an icky thing to be doing. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Ego What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to Backers and Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning and our undying devotion. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.